Welcome to the next episode of the Austin Bar Association's Council of Firsts. I'm your host, Amanda Arriaga, Austin Bar President. This podcast is made possible by the Texas Bar Foundation. In today's episode, we talked to a guest who is truly a first. Judge Orlinda Naranjo was the first Latina elected to a countywide judicial seat in 1994 when she was elected to lead the Travis County Court at Law No. 2. She served in that role until 2006 when she became the judge of the 419th Judicial District Court. Judge Naranjo has accomplished so much in her career. She has served on the State Commission for Judicial Conduct, the Texas Judicial Council, the first-ever Texas Indigent Defense Task Force, the National Consortium on Racial and Ethnic Fairness in the Courts, and chaired the Juvenile Justice Committee, which eliminated the ticketing of students for Class C misdemeanors. Judge Naranjo is a two-time president of the Robert Calvert Inn of Court, has served as vice president of districts for the National Association of Women Judges, chair of the State Bar of Texas Standing Committee on Jury Service, and is an active member of the Hispanic National Bar Association, Hispanic Bar Association of Austin, Austin Bar Association, Travis County Women Lawyers Association, and the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. She is also the board member of a new organization, Texas Latinx Judges. She is the recipient of the Austin Bar Association's David Walter Community Service Award, the Outstanding Latina Leader Award for Avance, Woman of Distinction Award from the Girl Scout Council of Texas, and the Corazon Award from Con Mi Madre. I am honored to introduce Judge Orlando Naranjo. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. So I think we know a lot about what happened once you became a judge, but I want to start with how did you get there? What was your background like? Why did you, how did you become a lawyer? How did you get to that place where you wanted to do that? Well, I do think that background, your experiences, your life experiences are really important to get where you are, you know, today. You know, I grew up in northern New Mexico in Española. I'm one of seven kids, and uh, my mom and dad were did not have an education. My mom went to the eighth grade, and she was very proud of that, my dad to the sixth grade. Uh, my mom uh, worked as a maid and then as a cook in middle school, to in a middle school, and then my father, heavy equipment operator. And that's what they did. But uh, they really impressed upon us hard work, work ethic, strong work ethics, and uh, also how important education was. And it was an opportunity for each of one of us to get ahead, was through education. Um, I'll always remember my dad would show us his hands, and he says, I don't want you to have hands that look like this, and they were calloused and broken and things, and because of what he did for a living. And he, he really impressed upon us how important education was. And uh, then my, you know, I had a heartache at the age of seven, 15. My father passed away of a massive heart attack, in fact, in front of me. And that was um, heartbreaking. And, uh, and, and a year later, I ended up becoming, a year and a half later, becoming a teen parent, marrying uh, my husband, uh, also a young man, teen. Uh, and that marriage didn't last very long. We had a lot of obstacles to overcome, primarily raising a child as teenagers. Uh, but uh, we got a divorce. I was divorced by the age of 20, 21. And it's at that time that I decided I was a good student. Uh, I was always college-bound. Again, education was so important. But I had this obstacle that I had created myself, and but in the sense that getting pregnant as a, as a 
young teenager and uh, and raising a child, got divorced and decided that I was going to go back to co- I was going to go to college. I'll always remember because I had a great job at the Los Alamos Scientific Laboratories as a secretary, and everybody was trying to get into the lab, you know, because that was the best pain in the, in northern New Mexico. Um, and I even had a security clearance. And I remember I told my mom, I'm going to quit my job and go to college. And she said, my gosh, you know, in Spanish, you know, mijita, que pasa, you've got the best job. You know, why would you do that? I said, mom, because I don't want to be a secretary all my life. Not that there's, that's a fine profession, but I wanted to get an education. So I went to a small university in, nor- in northern New Mexico, Las Vegas, Highlands University, uh, a state school. I, I, you know, lived in the, you know, uh, family dormitories with my daughter and got a degree in biology with a minor in chemistry. I really had thought I'd become a nurse. And I'll always remember, and I should have gone to nursing school instead of, but anyway, that's what I did. And I'll always remember my physics professor saying to me, why a nurse? Why not a doctor? And to me, that was like, what? Me, a doctor? I can't even imagine that. Uh, and uh, because I didn't have any lawyers, any doctors uh, in my family. Um, anyway, so I ended up uh, applying to medical school and got in. And, uh, you know, after two years of medicine, I said, this is not for me. So I spent a year uh, actually recruiting uh, minority students to come to medical school at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. I was, you know, really targeting, you know, science majors, engineer majors, and things like that to try to get them to think about medicine as a career, even though I was leaving it. Uh, but then I applied to law school. It was interesting because I spent a, I would study at the law school. So a lot of my friends became, were lawyers or law students. And so I applied to law school and, and, and was accepted. I got my law degree and one of the most important days in my life that I can still remember as if, as if it were today was being on that stage as I was getting my diploma, uh, a, a Juris Doctorate. And looking down at my family, which filled a lot of <laughs> rows because I had uncles and aunts and all of that. My whole extended family, we're a big family. And uh, looking down at my mother and tears just rolling down her eyes about how proud she was. And even today, it, it, it brings a lot of tears uh, because I, I think what happens is that people, you make you have obstacles, you may create them, and you overcome them. Now, remember that we tend to think that our teen parents cannot overcome the obstacle of being a single parent or uh, raising a child, but you can. And and I did. And it, it was a wonderful day. I can always remember that. And my daughter was there, and as a single parent, and college and law school and medical school, I was a single parent raising her and all those financial struggles. I mean, I, that's what I tell kids that I speak to is to say, look, you may not have even the support of your family. I was very fortunate that I did. And uh, my mom couldn't give me money. She always, I, she was so proud that she could help me with $20 or she would always 
commit to buying my daughter a winter coat. Every other year, she had to always get it bigger so it could last her two years. And uh, my family would help me as much as they could financially. But I took out loans, grants. I knew any organization that was giving out a scholarship, I would apply for it. Uh, and that's the way I put myself through school and, and came out with some college debt, not like what the kids are coming out with today at all. But, uh, you know, and I graduated from law school and had worked for a law firm and they offered me a job and I took it and and I uh, was very happy there in New Mexico working for the law firm of Butthorn and Bear, which is a very well-respected um, mid-sized law firm in Albuquerque. Do you think that your background um, and all the support you received is why mentorship remains so important for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know how important it makes to have a a champion, so a cheerleader helping you. And remember that we, you know, there are so many kids that say, I can never, I could never go to law school. I mm -hmm. could never be a lawyer. I don't know a lawyer. I don't even know what that is. I mean, from the perspective of what does a day in the life of a lawyer look like or the day in the life of a judge look like? Uh, do they look like me, you know? And I always try to impress how important it is to know that they can make it, that they can do it. They may have obstacles. I'm not saying it's easy. And they'll have to work hard, but they have to have a commitment. They have to have a goal, and they have to have a vision. Mm -hmm. And that vision, that's why I like, and I always try to speak to them. I've learned Espanol, you know, so I always try to let them know that um, I do this little routine. Like I say, okay, how many of you, you know, are raised by, uh, you know, a single parent? So that, you know, either because they're divorced, you know, they're never married, or they're passed away, and we raise our hand, you know, so we— start sharing our commonalities because we have so much in common. How many of you spoke uh, uh, English was your second language? We raise our hands, you know, and, and so that they understand that. How many of you, your parents do not have a formal education? Raise our hands. So, again, we're seeing the commonalities, especially as, as I get older. You know, they don't see how can they have anything in common with a, a judge, much as a Latina who's much older than them, excuse me. But uh, anyway, um, I always try to raise the, identify the commonalities that we have. Well, and I'm guessing with your background starting off as a secretary and with the jobs that your parents have, um, you're not very elitist. And I bet that you treat everybody the same, regardless of status and regardless of profession. I try. Mm -hmm. I really try. I try not to ever come across as that I'm better, that I'm smarter that I'm, you know, I try to, you know, connect, uh, and I, that is very important to me. My, my family was always, you always have to remember where you came from. Mm -hmm. Never forget that. That was critical, and, and I do that. Even when I go back to New Mexico, I can sit down with anybody and have a, a great conversation. It doesn't matter to me if, uh, you know, if you're the— maintenance person mm -hmm. or our deputies in our court in our court our judge the litigants that come in front of me or came in front of me <laughs> so you came from new mexico you have a great job in a law firm how did you get to texas well that's my husband fell in love <laughs> <laughs> fell in love it was really interesting um uh, one of my, the litigation, because I was in the litigation section, 
uh, the one of the partners comes in and says, hey, you know, most of us are skiers, you know, because we were able to ski in Sandia and Santa Fe. And he came in and would say, uh, we have some attorneys that are coming in that are regional counsel uh, in the wrongful death litigation that we had and said, you you need to, I keep, I keep pounding on this. Uh, can you go uh, uh, skiing? Because the general counsel for that corporation wants to go skiing in Taos. And so uh, it turned out that what the regional counsel was Jim's law firm. And so he went uh, representing the regional counsel. We were the local counsel and then the general counsel. And so we all went skiing in Taos. And he was one of the lawyers. And it turned out that we were comparable skiers. And uh, uh, and that was the beginning of the story. We dated for two years long distance. Uh, and... Uh, Went back and forth, back and forth, and got married two years to the date that uh, uh, in Taos, and just celebrated a year ago, 35 years, and we went back and had a celebration of our 35th uh, in Taos again. Invited friends and family, and we had a wonderful time. Oh, good. Well, congratulations on your anniversary. So then the two things that we did is whoever got a job first, either in Texas or New Mexico, and uh, and I uh, had always been I'd been talking to the city of Austin and uh, the um, litigation department, and uh, turned out that the attorney that I had been really uh, talking to about working in that section was leaving, and so then I applied for his position and got it. So we came to Austin. I moved to Austin. That's great. Mm -hmm. And then at some point you decided you wanted to run for judge. How did you make that decision? Well, it was really interesting. So I've, I always try to encourage young lawyers uh, to apply, it's not, you know, not to forget that the government is a wonderful place to get experience. So uh, because, uh, you know, you're going to be doing a lot more than just research or carrying the, somebody's briefcase or sitting in the back while somebody argues the brief that you <laughs> that you prepared, um, and so I I uh, but I always remember in law school I started you know applying to the clinics and I did a misdemeanor clinic, and I remember going into that misdemeanor clinic. Of course, you know this was my really exposure to judges and lawyers, and uh, looking up there and saying, "Gosh, someday I want that position." And that position was, uh, there was a, a female judge in the misdemeanor clinic, and uh, she was uh, gracious, she was smart, she had control of the courtroom, and, and you know, obviously she had the power to make decisions uh, that impacted people's lives. And, uh, and I thought could make a difference. Now, so I started thinking about that when I was in, in uh, New Mexico. Now, I happen to come from a family that is very political in New Mexico. I had an uncle that was a senator, a uh, state senator. He had, um, uh, I had a brother who was on the school board, so very active. Uh, I had a, uh, another brother who was uh, on a commission there, in, again, in northern New Mexico, and so I guess maybe politics and, and giving back to our community. 
taking leadership roles in the community was very important. Uh, and so because in those positions, you have a seat at the table and you can make a difference. And so, uh, you know, so if I could have stayed in New Mexico, it would have been a lot easier for me to become a judge mm -hmm. because I already had connections. I was already involved in the community. I was already involved in organizations. And then coming here to Texas, I didn't know anybody other than the few friends I had met through my husband, uh, who is a lawyer as well. And so I kind of said, well, do I have to give that up coming here? And then I said, no, I don't. I'll just, you know, and what I did, and that's what I tell young lawyers is, look, if you are really interested, you need to get involved in with organizations and issues that are important to you. Don't just get involved to get involved. What is important to you? What are you passionate about? It, you know, and so I was passionate about women and the advancement of women. I was uh, passionate about the advancement of Latinas and our minority uh, women and, and men, our population. And I was also very uh, passionate about our children. Uh, and so I got involved with those types of organizations. Uh, I was, um, I always remember I got involved with the Hispanic Women's Network of Texas I, at the beginning. And then I got involved with the uh, Awesome Women's Political Caucus with the Democratic Party. Uh, I got involved with the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I got involved with Avance. Uh, I was on the board of, of, it was called the Teenage Parent Council because I was a teen parent. I had a unique perspective to bring to that board. And that, and that was, I know what it's like. I know what it's like not to have, you know, maybe have the support, maybe not have the support. How, you know, and try to, you know, to say, you know, uh, it is difficult to become a teen parent. It is the most difficult. Uh, but, but, you know, making decisions about keeping the child, not keeping the child, all of those are very difficult decisions, very personal decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, uh, we got involved with that, and then that I was involved with it when it ended up merging with other organizations and became LifeWorks. You know, so, um, so again, those are all issues that I was very passionate about. Then I got involved with Leadership Austin and then Leadership Texas. And so all of, the, all of that uh, were organizations that I was very involved in and was passionate about all of those issues. So it's almost 30 years ago now. You're elected for the first time in 1994. Um, did you know it was historic that you were the first Latina elected to a countywide judicial seat? Yes. Yes. How was it celebrated, if at all? Well, it, it was, well, first of all, let me just say it was difficult. Because I came from New Mexico, and you've got to remember that politics over there and the scene is very different. There has been Governor Apodaca, Governor Anaya, a lot of Latinos in leadership and Latinas in leadership roles. And then, you know, you come here and you had Senator Montoya, you know, years in, in U.S. Senator. And you come here 
And it was such a struggle. We were still struggling to take leadership roles. You had, uh, and and I think it was very different. You had the men, Latinos were going, and then you had the women. And, um, and sometimes they supported each other, and sometimes it wasn't as, as, as you would have wished. Uh, and I remember when I made the decision, I was with a law firm, and I thought, I have to make that decision if I'm going to run. Because once I start, I become a partner in that firm. It was at that time Small, Craig, and Workentine. I had left the city to join them, and uh, I had said, I-, I need to make that decision. And it was also 1994 and 93 was really the year of the women. Women were really coming forward and taking positions and, and putting themselves out there to run for office at all the different levels. And I'll always remember talking to my support group and, you know, different support groups, you know, and saying, what do you think? Said, go for it. Now's the time. And so I ran against, started running against an incumbent. And so you had that issue. You're running against an incumbent who's been there 12 years, a male. Um, And then second, you know, you're Latina or Hispanic. And uh, I'm not sure we're ready for that. And this is Travis County in 1994. We're not ready for that. That floored me. That really floored me. And people would say, you're light-skinned, you got blue eyes, uh, you could pass for a, a white woman. Why don't you use your married name, which is Eubank? I said, I won't do that. And I can't believe that organizations would tell me that. You know, and I, I'm not going to do that. They said, well, if they see you on TV and you use your married I'm, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'll always remember when I'd be out there campaigning and I'd have my orange and white, because naranja, not, mm-hmm. okay, my orange and white uh, signs, and they'd say, I'll always remember this man rolling down his window and saying, if I could pronounce your name, I might vote for you, and yelling out at me. And I said, you don't have to pronounce it. Vote for me. Because <laughs> I just, you know, was I offended? No. You know, because there are names that I can't pronounce. and But it was just, you know, I just said, it doesn't matter that you can pronounce it. If you try to pronounce it, that's better. But just vote for me because I'm the better candidate. It turned out that the incumbent decided not to run. And um, because uh, about two of us started jumping, j- jumped in, and there was four of us in the race. I was the only Hispanic woman, and there was a Hispanic male, and then two uh, Anglo uh, lawyers, and um, I ended up in a runoff, and then ultimately won. And so, was it, I think, was it celebrated in the sense that uh, I don't remember getting that recognition until it became evident later? Uh, I know the American statesman did something, uh, you know, more that, you know, first Latina elected to a, a countywide judicial seat. Uh, but I think it was kind of in some ways a little shocking to some people that you go like, God, I can't believe it's 1994 and we haven't. Well, yeah, it's interesting that New Mexico would have had more Latino or Latina leadership before Texas because we're so much bigger and I don't know the history, but it seems like Texas has also had many Hispanic people 
um, as many as New Mexico. So just even population-wise, that seems strange that Texas was lagging behind. Well, I think you still had, uh, you know, uh, prejudices and biases that weren't electing, you know, and I'm glad, I'm very happy to say that's turned around, and especially in some areas of the state, you know, that are electing uh, women, electing uh, Latinos and uh, minority uh, uh, candidates more than ever. You know, and I, and I like that. I like seeing that. In New Mexico, uh, we didn't have that kind of biases and prejudice that you see, that we, I saw here in Texas when I moved here. You know, my, my family was concerned about it, you know, uh, because they just thought, is it going to be as receptive to you? How are they going to treat you, uh, you know, with the last name of Naranjo? And so it was, and I'm saying, I'm, I'm moving to the capital. I'm moving to, you know, a very uh, more liberal part of the state. And so... Um, There's been this interesting discussion. Um, this past year, it seems like most of the judges that were elected were women and women of color. And then there has been this narrative that I don't really like, that it's easier to win elections now in Travis County if you're a woman of color, specifically if you are Latina. And I think the reason it bothers me is because there's almost an implication that the Latina was not as qualified as anybody else in the race. Do you have thoughts on that? Have you heard this? They've used that argument before. You know, you're only getting into law school because you're a minority, because of affirmative action. It's that same argument. It's that same position, which I think is totally false. Uh, you know, I think that the population that is electing women is seeing that that women might bring something different and more to the bench than our counterparts. You know, I, I really, I, I really do believe that. Do I feel like I, you know, because I'm as a Latina on the on the bench, that I brought something different? Yes, my experiences. You know, the fact that I could speak Spanish to somebody that's coming in front of me that doesn't speak a word of English just to make them feel more comfortable in this very difficult and strange setting for them. I would I was I going to rule differently? No. You know, would I would I more empathetic? Maybe. You know, could I understand that if I was ordering somebody, let's say in a CPS case? Uh, you know, child protective service, and it's the case in front of me, a family law case. Would I, would I say, how can you, how can I order you to get a GED, get a job, go to uh, drug counseling, go to alcohol counseling, see your child, and do all of this without the support of family, without the without having a car, you know, all of that, and you just go. You can't do that. Could I do that? No, you know. So that's you know maybe maybe uh, that might be the difference. But no, I think that's a narrative, an argument that has been made forever. You know, from the perspective of once we started making inroads into institutions, educational institutions, in 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 professions, um, in you know law firms. You know, oh, did you only get the job because you were a minority woman? My point was, I wanted that job. I wanted a seat at the table because I do know we make a difference. 
You were elected in 1994. What issues were around then that you faced that you think are still around today? Well, I think some of what we just discussed. The fact that, you know, are you elected because you were a woman? Are you elected because you're a minority woman? Are you not qualified? Uh, I was elected six times. You know, because when I sat on the bench for 24 years, I know that if I wasn't qualified, I would have not been reelected. I really was committed to uh, being the best judge that I could be. And, uh, and sometimes I think, could I have done this a little bit better? Could I have, you know, we all do that, right? We all are second-guessing ourselves. But, you know, uh, I think that those are some of the same issues that, you know, that we had back then, you know, that, you know, that we have today. Because, first of all, we have to be qualified to run. And then second, you know, does it help that I'm a woman? I do really believe that our, the population, the populace looks at it and says, perhaps a woman can bring a different perspective to the bench. Maybe a Latina woman can bring a different perspective to the bench. Well, and even though you have been retired for a little bit now, you're still active in all your organizations, and you are now active in a brand new organization, Texas Latinx Judges. Why is that organization important to you? First, I'm a senior status, which means I'm still, I still sit as a visiting judge. Great. I still do mediation and arbitrations. But the nice thing about being in this status, I can say thank you for thinking of me, but no thank you. I'm not available. Uh, the Texas Latinx Judges was a real important organization because, once again, we're looking at, is there an organization that supports Latino, Latina judges? And there wasn't. You know, yes, we may get, uh, you know, we have affinity law organizations, but was there an affinity judicial organization? And there is something different about that. Um, uh, I think one of the things about being a judge is sometimes you get isolated. You know, you're you, the only... the. The company that you keep can be other judges. Of course, you have lawyers as, as friends as well. But there is some isolation to it. So it was, I think it's so important for this organization. And in fact, tomorrow is two years that we've been. Um, uh, tomorrow is our birthday. We are two years old. And I think it was really important because we thought it was so, it was important to create an organization that supported Latinx judges. That uh, net that we could network with each other, that also provided CLE for our organization and our members, and then also that we created a pipeline for future Latinx judges. That was so important. And again, that is so important to me with my mentoring. I have done that from day one to mentor young lawyers and say, somebody says, I've been thinking about it. I'll be happy to have you think about maybe what you need to do to take that path, to, to choose it. And it takes a while. You just can't say, well, I'm going to run for judge. If it, and, and then also to consider there's so many other positions of leadership and judicial positions. It's not just an elected judge. Again, we have appointments, uh, and uh, we have 
you can also get a job with as an administrative judge. Uh, so there are, you know, other positions that I think is a, you don't think about when you're thinking about becoming a judge. So I think that that creating a pipeline for Texas Latinx judges in the future. So we have generation of, of Latinx lawyers who are saying, that's what I want to become. It might be five years down the road. It might be two years. It might be 10 years. But I'm lining myself up for running for that position or applying for that position. And we're looking at, we're starting with uh, pathway to the courthouse, we call it. And we, you know, we're doing programs with high school students, with law students, you know, and uh, a program with uh, lawyers. That's great. One of the... Um one of the guests I had previously, Justice Gisela Triana, we talked about how it would be great at some point if these elections were no longer historic and it was just commonplace. The best person wins. The best person happens to be Latino or Latina. Um, and that's great. And we don't we would always celebrate it, but it's no longer. Well, it's the first one. It's just commonplace. And it's one of those things that becomes almost expected that, yes, of course, the Latino won. You know, that's that's who was the most qualified. It wasn't because they got extra points. Um, that's just who won. That that happened to be the most qualified person. And we'll celebrate it in a normal way and not just because it's historic. It'd be wonderful to be there. Yes. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. <laughs> but it would be great when that happens. It would be. It would be. But I don't know. There's always a celebration to think that, you know, there's another you know, because I think it's so important to pass the torch, mm-hmm. you know, both in leadership and uh, I think that's so important. Yes, I think the celebration just changes from being the first to the next. Yes, yes, that yes. is. That's exactly right. Yes. Um, so speaking of celebrations, when you retired, um, you had a big party that was a fundraiser for Volunteer Legal Services and the Austin Bar Foundation. Why was it important to you throughout your career to give back and even to keep giving back at that event? Volunteer Legal Services provides services to individuals who have financial needs, who cannot support, I mean, afford a lawyer, but need a lawyer, need representation. And, you know, they primarily do civil. But it's so important for these individuals to be able to access legal representation. And so VLS is so important to me, and that was why it was important uh, that if individuals were honoring the 24 years that I'd served as a, as a judge, and they were, you know, it was a fundraiser for that purpose, then I didn't, that money was to give to these two organizations. And I didn't want a big shindig. It was, you know, let's, you know, we have to have some appetizers and some fun, and I wanted mariachis there. But it was primarily to to raise some money for these organizations. Volunteer Legal Services, we also made sure that uh, my husband and I uh, also provided some money for a scholarship, for an internship, an intern. Uh, so that was, it was the, it's the Orlinda Naranjo, Judge Orlinda Naranjo internship. And so that's important from, uh, uh, again, to assist those who are, need the help financially, legally. And then for the Austin Bar Foundation, uh, the Austin Bar Foundation does provide some services that are very, very important. 
I think it's important to diversify. It's important to have the programs that do something like we're doing today. You know, and, and I appreciate what you're doing as a leader with the Austin Bar. And that is to recognize our first, to celebrate our first, to to um, disseminate that information because it is important. Um, and so that was what was very important to, to my husband and I and in a way to give back to our community. What's next for you? I have been having fun. Uh, I am still very involved with Texas Latinx Judges, involved with the National Association of Women Judges, and uh, again, trying to do some some uh, uh, work with um, on the bench still, visiting some uh, private judging, some mediation, but traveling. I'm enjoying my granddaughters. I'm in, my youngest daughter has just graduated from law school next week. And so, do you know, we're traveling to Spain and Morocco and, and enjoying life. I'm healthier than I've been in a long time doing yoga and cardio fit classes. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, we don't take care of our health like we should, when, especially if we're on the bench or, or you know, your legal career, you know, that kind of gets put to the back burner instead of in the front. And uh, so I, I feel really good about that, and and volunteering with my church that I didn't have, I just didn't have the time to. So now I'm kind of doing some other things, you know. And I always tell people, no, I do not want to volunteer as a in my legal capacity. I want to volunteer where I'm more on on one contact with someone in the community that needs us. Since we have a few minutes left, do you have any advice that you would like to give to the lawyers out there? I just want you to remember that you do have an obligation to, you know, to pay it forward. You really do. Uh, to reach out, do you volunteer, you know, with Big Brothers Big Sisters, uh, with LifeWorks, with Avance, with those organizations that really need our help, uh, you know, with foster care, with CASA. Uh, think about that. Just uh, volunteer and give back to your organ to your community, your community at large, and your legal community. Uh, when I was president of the ANSA Court, I'll always remember uh, we were talking about what can we do as an organization for you know to give back to our community. Individually, we were doing different things, uh, but you know, some were working with Habitat for Humanity. All uh, all of the different wonderful organizations that you can give back to. But what we as an organization, and we cre I created um, uh, what I called MOSS, Mentoring a Student. And we I picked Travis High School. Why? Large minority population, uh, low socioeconomic. And so what we did is once a month, we'd go to a class, and it was the criminal justice class, and it had about 30 students, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. And once a month, lawyers and judges go in there, and we talk about different issues. Now that you're 18, and this is juniors and seniors in high school, you know, you can enter the contract. You could, you know, um, uh, you can start voting. You can, you know, serve as a juror. All of just topics of interest to them. We talked about many of the, you know, current issues. And that continues today. Uh, and and it, we started, uh, I started a dating violence mock trial. 
Uh, and that's uh, important because we one out of every five high school student will be involved in a dating violence in dating violence relationship, and they needed to understand what were the red flags that they needed to look at, or their one of their friends or a family member, and so we did that mock trial, and we bring the uh, students from different schools uh, to observe, and then our kids from Travis High School actually they do are be. They're the, you know, student lawyers, and they have lawyers who help them prepare for the mock trial. And just a couple of weeks ago, it was held in uh, Aurora, uh, Judge Aurora Jones, uh, Martinez Jones, I'm sorry, uh, courtroom. She's taken it over for me, and uh, so that's been wonderful. And so that's the kind of legacy that I want to leave, continue, and you want the program to continue, the Color of Justice program. And I get involved with that, and that's the National Association of Women Judges. But our district has District 11, which is Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. We put on that program. Now it's like statewide, but there that program has been in existence for about 30 years. But started with the National Association of Women Judges because we know that if you have a mentor that can guide you, that can help you. Uh, you'll succeed, or at least you'll, you know, you've got somebody to help you and is in your corner, who's your cheerleader. And I think that's so important. So I think we as lawyers, we have an obligation to do that. It's an obligation to help young lawyers as we become more senior to be able to say, call me, I'll be happy to help you. I'll always remember Judge Phillips and I, when we were in the county court of law, we had a young lawyer that was very smart, very smart young lawyer, but really lacked common sense in how he was trying his jury trials. So we just said, and at that time, the Austin Bar had kind of a mentorship program. And I don't even know if that's still in existence. But at that time, they did. And we, we called and said, can you assign a senior lawyer to this to this young lawyer? And and he came and observed him in trial and you know helped him prepare and it was so, what a difference that made, that impact, that effect of that older, more experienced lawyer helping this young lawyer try a case. I got a card, Judge Phillips and I got a card, maybe six years later. The lawyer, I think, had even moved to New Mexico. And he sent us a card saying how much, how much he appreciated that help, that we took that effort to help uh, help him find a mentor that could help him become a better lawyer. And he just had said, I never said thank you. And that really was wonderful. I've had um, uh, people that come in front of me and always say, Judge, do you remember me? And I'm looking and I go, You're lazy. You know, I'm really good at faces, names maybe. I have a little more trouble with it. And as I've gotten older, more trouble. But anyway, they'll say, Judge, I remember you spoke to our group, and you, you talked about, you know, don't let the fact that you're a teen parent, the fact that you're, you know, uh, to stop you, you keep going. You know, you, you know, you just keep going forward. Have a goal. And I think if you have something to work for, then I think you keep working towards that goal. You may fall a few times. You just get up and keep going. Uh, and she says, I've got to, you know, I finished my nursing degree, and uh, if I would get asked so many times to come speak to classes and in the nursing school, uh, 
you know, uh, the law school, uh, an affinity group, I would be there. If I could make it, or a grade school, you know, career day, you know, that type of thing, I was there as often as I could to let somebody see me in a robe and talk to these kids and talk about my own personal experience and journey and let them know I had, I may have been where you were when you were 15, 16, and now look where I am, you know, and, and you can be there too. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us again today. I very much appreciate that you were willing to be on this podcast. Um, and hey, lawyers, pay it forward and give back, just like Judge Naranjo has done her entire career. Um, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you.